0: Romans 10, starting at verse 1. Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. For I bear them record that they have a zeal of God, but not according to knowledge. For they, being ignorant of God's righteousness and going about to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted themselves unto the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone that believeth. For Moses describeth the righteousness which is of the law, that the man which doeth those things shall live by them. But the righteousness which is of faith speak on this wise, say not in thy heart, who shall ascend into, into heaven, that is to bring Christ down from above, or who shall descend into the deep, that is to bring up Christ again from the dead. But what saith it, The word is nigh thee, even in thy mouth and in thy heart, that is the word of faith which we preach. that ah, uh, if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus Christ, and shalt believe in thine heart that Christ, or say that God, hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. For the Scripture saith, Whosoever believeth on him shall not be ashamed. For there is no difference between the Jew and the Gentile, for the same Lord over all is rich unto all that call upon him. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. <clears throat> it is one great big thought. I want you to notice that after verse 1, every single one of those verses starts with a 4444, four, 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 but or but that. Four, 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 four. That is one continuous thought. That's a pretty complicated thought. And I don't think I can get through it in one Sunday morning. But I'm going to try to get through the first four verses. Uh, But before I dive into this passage, I'm going to tell you an account that happened actually earlier this month. Where we live in the southeast corner of the valley I get to church on Sunday morning, and I've got to cross over the Walnut Avenue Bridge. And what happens is, is a couple times a year, the city of Roanoke has a race, or they have several races. They have 10Ks, they have marathons, they have triathlons, and what they do is, a couple times a year, they close down the Walnut Avenue Bridge, and they shut it down for the race contestants. And they put barriers up to save them. And then what happens is, is um, I get up in the morning, and what I have to realize is, is they actually do another thing that's kind of nice. A week in advance, they put up signs saying on Sunday morning, the Walnut Avenue Bridge is going to be closed. And what they're trying to do is trying to save from congestion. So I have to know that Sunday morning I get up, instead of coming out of my street and making a left and taking the wall and avenue bridge, I make a right, I go around Yellow Mountain, and around 220 and come into church that way. Now you're looking at me and saying, what's that got to do with the gospel or Jesus Christ or Romans 10? I'm being sneaky. In that particular passage, I used the word save twice. Right? Did you notice? And your brain goes into automatic pilot, and you grab the context, and you determine what the saving is from, correct? So what was the first saving? The first saving was the contestants, the, the, the racers, right? See, one thing about the Walnut Avenue Bridge that they use that pathway so much is, if you keep on going straight, it goes up a gentle incline, and it ends up on the Blue Ridge Parkway. It's a perfect place to get a lot of miles in, whether you're running or you're on a bike. So that's why they grab that road every Sunday. But I say they put up barriers to save the contestants. In your mind, do you really think they put John 3.16 on the barriers? Did they have the sinner's prayer on the barriers? Of course not. That's ridiculous. What did the context tell you that saving was from? Anybody? Anybody? Traffic, harm, right? Okay, so I also use the word save talking about me. See, I knew Sunday morning a couple weeks ago when this happened, I knew to take a right and not a left, and it saved me. What did it save me from? Congestion. It saved me time. Well, yeah, but, you know, normally when I take the Wall and Wallenavroon Bridges, it takes me about 12 minutes to get here but when I have to go around Yellow Mountain, it takes me about 22 minutes to get here. But if I would have gone my regular way and had to back up and go through all that traffic, it saved me from time and gas and impatience. Yeah, frustration, right? But I like what you just did. Now, I go through that whole account to tell you that there are savings, but there's three ways... We come to our conclusion. One is there's a saving, and I'm just going to call that a fact. And in the story I told you, in the account, I didn't say it saved you, or it saved a runner from harm of a car. See, I didn't. I didn't do that. That would be a fact. And they put up barriers to save the runners from getting hurt by cars. That would be a fact, but I didn't say that. You had to do, and I don't know a name for it. I made this one up. I call it an antecedent. In grammar, an antecedent is talking a pronoun referring to a noun. If this is, God sent his son to earth... God is the noun, his refers back to him, and we have to use kind of a a relationship link to figure out who the his is. And that's kind of what we did with the saving. We linked it to the traffic and the runner, and we linked it and we said the salvation there is harm. Yes? But there's a third one that's even a little bit looser, and I call that an inference. Okay? And I'll try to explain these with illustrations in just a second. So with that being said, I want to go back into Romans chapter 10. Let me go here real fast. But I want you to notice in that passage I read to you, there are three saved. Got it? And not one of them is a fact. Because right next to the saving, it doesn't say what the saving's from. So you have to either use the antecedent approach or you have to use the inference approach. Because it's just not there. Okay, are you, are you with me so far? Brother Dolph, you're being awful technical. You can't understand this passage unless you do this. You can't do it. And, and what happens is our brains do it automatically. And the, there's a problem with automatic pilot. Sometimes we make mistakes in our automatic pilot. Right? Right? So we've got to raise our consciousness level just a little bit. Okay, so let me go on and let me go back here and I'm going to give you an example. Okay, here's an example of a fact saving. Okay, I'm going to go to Titus 3 and I'm going to read 3 and 5 and notice there's a saving in there. But the Bible in this case tells us exactly what the saving is from. We don't have to guess. We don't have to trace it back to an antecedent. It's just right there. So Titus 3, 3 through 5 says, For we ourselves also were sometimes foolish and disobedient, deceived, serving diverse lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. But after that, the kindness of the love of God our Savior toward man appeared, Not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us by the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the spirit. When I read this, what we as saints of God have been saved from is our sinful nature. And it even goes on to say how that saving happened is by the washing of regeneration and by the renewing of the Holy Spirit. And it even goes on to say, it wasn't you that did it. Here is another one of those accordings. Remember the accordings from last week? It was according to him. So here's what I would call an example of a fact-saving where all the details are there. You'll be really surprised at how few fact verses are in Scripture. But our brains go into automatic pilot, and automatic pilot can get us into trouble sometimes. Okay? I don't know if you remember. Now, I'm really going back because there's some of you that haven't been here the 12 years since I've been here. But the first study I did on a Wednesday night was something called hermeneutics. And you think, Brother Dolph, what's that? That's a fancy word for rules of Bible study. And what we did is we spent several months, when I first got here, studying the rules of Bible study. And I made a contract with this church that I would employ those rules of Bible study on every verse of Scripture. And I hope you smile when I say this, but there are verses that, let's say, other denominations tend to go to. And there are certain verses primitive Baptists tend to go to, And my contract was I would apply those rules of Bible study to all verses, no matter who claims them as their favorite. Because I refuse to get into a contest where you get a stack of 10 verses and I get a stack of six verses and you win because your stack is bigger. That's not how you interpret scripture. If you got a stack of 10 and a stack of six, my guess is you're both wrong. And you got to figure out how to consolidate and make those harmonize and come together and find the truth, whatever God's truth is. Whoever's right or wrong, so be it. I don't care. In coming up with my seven rules of Bible study, I read a whole bunch of people. And I found lists as short as five, and I found lists, these are other preachers over centuries, is lists as long as 20-something rules. I came up with a list of seven, and the reason why I did is those seven, all of them had at least two or three verses to support every one, and that's where I felt comfortable resting. Okay? But of those seven, I came up with the sixth one, and I didn't, none of these are original to me, I stole every one of them, okay, was differentiate between a proof text and a reference text. You know, what does that mean? Basically what I just said, there's verses that are facts, there's verses that are kind of antecedent relationship, and there's verses that are inference. And you'll be surprised at how few fact verses there are claiming what you think is, should be obvious to everybody. And I got news for you. The farther you get away from the fact verses to the antecedent verses to the inferences, the ones you have to be more and more careful and conservative. Yes. Let me give you an example of an inf- or I'm sorry, an antecedent verse. Okay? This is a, a re- record in Matthew 14. Let me read this passage, and you'll notice there's a save here. And he said, Come. And when Peter was come down out of the ship, he walked on the water to go to Jesus. But when he saw the wind boisterous, he was afraid and beginning to sink. He cried, saying, Lord, save me. So Jesus got down on his knees and showed him the sinner's prayer. So Jesus read him John 3, 16. No, no. Isn't that silly? Okay. And immediately Jesus stretched forth his hand and caught him and said unto him, O thou of little faith, wherefore didst thou doubt? And when they were come into the ship, the wind ceased. What was the saving under consideration? And I would have to say drowning. Would you say amen? Okay, what? It doesn't say, Lord, save me from drowning. Peter was so much in a hurry, he left that part off. But what tips us off that it's a drowning The boisterous wind, the sea, the sinking, and how he was saved. Jesus reached down, he grabbed his hand, and he pulled him out. I think the I'm pretty confident that saving there is drowning, and it's not the Lord's prayer or a sinner's prayer or John three sixteen or anything like that. But it didn't say that. We assumed it based on the context. But, but our minds are pretty adept at doing that automatically. That's why when I said which saving it was for the race contents, you said from getting hurt. And I said, what was the saving from the car? And it was getting caught in congestion. And Sister Amber, knowing me well enough, she went and made an inference and she said, frustration, frustration. It didn't say save from frustration. I didn't say that, but the, frustra- the saving was from the traffic jam. But she went a step further, and she tied frustration to me in a traffic jam. And I think even my wife would say, and children would say amen to that. You got it? But that was an inference. Sometimes our inferences are spot on, and sometimes they're not. And when we go to the inference, we have to cognitively recognize I'm making an inference here and not a go in automatic pilot. and See, that's a fact. Well, it's not a fact. Matter of fact, I think most of the miscommunication between us is someone saying something meaning something uh, something, and another person hearing it and inferring they meant something else, and that's usually where the friction happens. Amen? Because we're not good at reading each other's mind. Let me give you an example of an inference. One more verse. Notice here it says in 1 Corinthians 18, For the preaching of the cross to them that perish foolishness, but to us which are saved it is the power of God. Now, does that verse say what we're saved from? And the answer is no. It's not in there. Is there any kind of antecedent that kind of tips us off into that? The answer is not really but what happens is, is to come to the conclusion what kind of saving that is we've got to make some inferences I think it's pretty clear but I just want you to cognitively know no that's safe from going to hell I don't want to preach on that sermon but in order to interpret that we've got to make some assumptions right and some inferences are easier than others But I want you to recognize when you're making assumption. Got it? What's the verse? Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of God. That's exactly what I'm talking about. You make a wrong inference, you're going to be ashamed. You're going to misrepresent God. Right? Rightly dividing the word of God. That's what we're doing. All right. I see one save at the end of verse 1, another one at the end of verse 9, and another one at the end of verse 13. But nowhere in there does it say, save from the eternal lake of fire. Does it? Is there an antecedent where the eternal lake of fire is anywhere in that passage? No. Is there saving from everlasting torment, destruction, hell? And the answer is, no, it's not there. So I'm either going to have to do an antecedent or an inference. There's the only way I can find out what the saving's from. Yes? Okay. Now, salvation is referenced in verse 10, with the mouth of confession is made unto salvation. Notice it's that salvation reference doesn't say attaining salvation, obtaining, inheriting, getting salvation. It's made unto salvation as in referencing it. That's not a proof text, y'all. So, so how do I determine what that saving's from? And that's what the rest of this sermon is. Brother Doff. are you telling me every time I see a saving, I've got to do this in my Bible? I'm afraid so. If you want to know what God's telling you, you're going to have to do that. Amen? Amen? There's, There's no way around it. I'm going to go through some reasoning with you. I want to show you in the eternal salvation that it's not by us. Okay, and we can go there in Romans 9, 11, It says that children not yet being born, neither having done any good or evil, the purpose of God according to the election might stand not of works but of him that calleth. There's a salvation under consideration in Romans 10, but Romans 9 says it's not by anything you do. It's by everything God does. Okay, that's our election. Okay, but, but what about regeneration? Sorry, it's there too. Ephesians 2, 9 and 10. Not of works, lest any man should boast. We are his workmanship, created in Christ unto good works, which God hath before ordained. Well, I can't take any credit for election. I can't take any credit for regeneration either. It's not by anything you do. It's all by God. And then the effectual call, which is also a form of the regeneration, 2 Timothy 1.9, who saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works. Do you think God is trying to tell us something? It's not by you. I want you to remember these three verses because we're going to come back to them. But according to his own purpose and grace given us in Christ Jesus before the world began. Are you sure it wasn't me? Sorry, this thing happened before the world began. <sighs> can't you give me a little credit, God? No. No. Okay? So 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 what is this saving in Romans ten? If it's got anything to do with something I have to respond to, you know what? It's not can't be eternal. God covered it from beginning to end, and he took all the credit. Okay? In Romans chapter 3, I want to show you something. There is a group of Jews, and we're going to go back and read this in a second. But what did it say about them? It said they were zealous of God. They were fearful of God and they were trying to obey God to earn their way into heaven well wait a second that doesn't reckon in my mind because what happens here's a people that desire heaven but they thought they must earn it but Romans 3.10 says none are righteous and you know what they're trying to do they're trying to do righteousness huh in verse 11, it says, there are none that seek God. But you know what these people were doing? They were seeking God. How does that happen? Wait, 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 wait. wait! None seek God. But these guys were seeking God. How does that work? Verse 12 says, They were zealous of good works. But Romans 3.12 says, none do good. And they were doing good. Their problem was they were doing it for the wrong reason. But they were doing good because they feared God. Huh. And then finally in verse 3.18, it says, none fear God. And they were fearing God. So wait a second. Why would Paul pray for a people that were trying to do good, were fearing God, were zealous of God, and were seeking God? Sounds like a pretty good group of people. And the answer is yes. You know what he was trying to do? What was he saving them from? He was saving them from the burden of trying to earn their way into heaven. We'll read the passage, and the context will lay that out. No one can live up to that criteria. And that'll send you either into a mental hospital, or a bar stool, or a depression in bed, because you can't do it. And Paul was praying that he could save these people from ignorance. Ignorance. Prove it, Brother Dolph. I'm going to do it a couple of ways. We just use the inference relative to what God does in our eternal salvation and relative to our total depravity, what we're capable of doing. But let's do it on the antecedent basis. Let's go see the passage. Romans 10, 1 through 4. I want you to look at this verse really, really close. My brethren, my heart's desire in prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. Now notice, it does not say the eternal lake of fire. It does not say offer the sinner's prayer. It does not say invite the Spirit into their heart. It doesn't say any of that. Well, Paul, what is it? Okay? Okay. For I bear them record, they have a zeal of God, but not according to the knowledge. You know what? They're ignorant. They're ignorant. That's what he's, he's saving them from their ignorance. For they being ignorant of God's righteousness, they did not understand. They were seeking God, but they didn't recognize his son or his son's finished work. And going about to establish their own righteousness and have not submitted themselves unto the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone that believeth. He is not saying that you need to believe to become a child of God. These guys already were children of God. Prove it. They're doing good. They're seeking God. They're searching God. They want to do good works. What was he saving them from, thinking it was all up to them? What releases the burden of thinking it is all up to them? Faith in Christ's finished work is what does it. Paul is not trying to teach them how to get to heaven. He's trying to tell them that Christ already earned them heaven and stopped trying to work so hard. And they go, ah. Y'all, that's good news. Okay, and the reason why I was sharing this is in the last, actually this month, I've had several occasions where people came to me with some really bad doctrine from other orders. I had one come to me and, you know, involved a suicide. Their church says, my brother's going to go to hell because he killed himself. Dolph, do you really think that's happening? you know what, that's a tremendous burden. I should have, I could have, I would have said, if I would have intervened, if I would have spent more time with, you know all that guilt? Jesus' blood is stronger than self-murder. Amen? Amen? Amen. There are a couple folks I can name in Scripture whose names is written in the book of eternal life that took out their own lives. I can show them to you. Notice one in verse one, it says, my prayer is they might be saved. Do you really think Paul could save someone from going to hell through prayer? How many times do we see Paul praying for someone out of hell in a fact verse? How many times do we see Jesus praying someone out of hell with a fact verse? That's not what he said. He says, I came here and I did your work and I'm not going to lose one of them. I got up there secure, God. What you gave me, the work is finished. I did it. Everyone is going there. But there's one that I kind of slipped up. Lord, please help this guy because I'm not sure about this guy. He didn't pray that way. Paul is not praying for them to get into heaven. They want to know he's already got a ticket to heaven and, you know, stop trying to earn it. Just enjoy the ride. So, let me go to verse 2. Verse 2, they have a zeal of God. These folks are seeking God. They are regenerate. He are, these guys are not dead alien sinners. Dead alien sinners do not seek God. They were seeking God. Lord, please help me. Show them the way. Okay. Verse 3. Going about to establish their own righteousness, this is where it says they were trying like the rich young ruler think they could obey their way into heaven. Paul, when he was a Pharisee, thought he could obey his way into heaven. Do you remember what tripped up Paul? All of a sudden he got his arms around that verse that says, "Thou shalt not covet." And he says, "Oh no, I never did anything, but you know what? I thought it, and that makes me just as guilty. I'm going to hell. That got him. Not according to knowledge, being ignorant of God's righteousness, I came to the conclusion using antecedent-type relationships and inferences of total depravity and God's finished work, I came to the conclusion Paul is praying that they be saved from their ignorance. Why? Why? Because the other is nowhere in the chapter. You've got to infer it, and it just doesn't make sense. Paul keeps on writing and tells people that men are going to put stumbling blocks in your way. They're going to do things through religion or through the theology or through their, I don't know, traditions. And they're just going to try to convince you that it's up to you to do something to get to heaven. And Paul keeps trying to thwart that thought. So notice what it says in Hebrews 9 9, which was a figure for the time then present, in which were offered both gifts and sacrifices that could not make him that did the service perfect. What he's saying in the Old Testament, they tried to obey their way into heaven, and you know what? They couldn't do it. That's what he's saying. Notice what it says here. See, there's a lot of this going around. In Matthew eleven twenty eight through 30, Come unto me, all ye that labor and heavy laden, I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus is saying, you know, that man-made religion stuff, that's too heavy for you to bear. Let it go. Come with my religion. Come with my finished work. Rest in my finished work. And you know what? You can bear that burden. Matthew 23, 4. This is the Pharisees talking to their congregation members. For they bind heavy burdens and grievous to be borne, and lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves will not move one of their fingers. Here's these religionists creating these rules for these people. We can't keep man's rules. And they keep piling them on. Here's another verse. Acts 15 and 10. Now therefore, why tempt ye God to put a yoke upon the neck of the disciples, which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear. This was the New Testament church after Pentecost, and there was a lot of New Testament ministers, and they were putting rules on people to get to heaven. One of those rules was circumcision. And Paul saying, why are you adding these rules? Our fathers couldn't do it, and you can't do it. He says, knock it off. Stop it. Stop it yesterday. No more rules to get to heaven. Galatians 4, 9, But now, after that ye have known God, rather, are known of God, how turn ye again to the weak and beggarly elements, whereunto ye desire again to be in bondage? What's he talking He's not talking about chains in a jail. He's talking about the theology, you got to do something to get yourself into heaven. He says, I, I came here, I preached to you, I settled all that when we started this church, and I left and I come back, and you know what? you got these rules to get into heaven again. He says, why are you putting people in bondage? Knock it off. That's what he's telling them got a picture here got an illustration I stole it from a radio preacher ever hear of a radio preacher named Adrian Rogers uh, he's, he does a lot of good stuff Romans 8 2 the law of the spirit of life in Christ hath made us free from the law of sin and death you're saying brother doll what in the world does that mean let me try to illustrate it with the something I stole from Adrian Rogers I tell you I don't have much original stuff I steal it all Okay. One day he was flying to a preaching appointment and he was in the airport and he was in the terminal looking out through the window and you know what he He saw that great big old plane. And you know, it was one of those commercial jets that holds somewhere between two or 300 people and he's looking at this thing and he's looking at that great big chunk of metal and he says, how in the world is that great big chunk of metal going to break the law of gravity and get up in the air? How in the world will that happen? And then they called the numbers, and he started loading the planes, and he was sitting there loading in the planes. He was looking out the window, and he saw a fuel truck going, go, 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 go. and he says, wow, that stuff weighs hundreds of gallons being poured. He says, now, how in the world is that plane going to break the law of gravity and get off the ground? And then he's sitting in there, and he's saying, all the people, come on. And then what he does is he looks out the window and he sees these other trucks coming up and they're tossing luggage on there and they're talking food trays and you know all this, all, all this other cargo is getting put on the plane. And he goes, how is this thing ever going to get off the ground? It can never break the law of gravity. And he's, he's thinking, he says, well... He says, if I get out of this plane and go underneath it and get all the other passengers and we get under the plane and start pushing up on this thing, you know know what, all we're going to get is hernias. We cannot do it. But then a pilot comes along in his nice little suit and he gets in the cockpit and he starts the plane up and he puts the thing forward, and he goes down the runway, and it's going faster, 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 and pretty soon you hear the bum 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 on the runway, and all of a sudden, it lifts up and it goes. And you know what happened? The law of lift and thrust overcame the law of gravity. It did something people couldn't do. That's what this verse is. You see it? The law of the spirit of life in Christ has made us free from the law of sin. Do you understand? So when you come to the point and realize, stop getting out on the tarmac, trying to push up that plane, getting it up in the air. Sit back and relax and let the pilot use the law of lift and thrust to overcome the law of gravity and drag. Go for it. So you got in terms of aviation you've got the law of lift and thrust and that's going to go overcome the law of weight and drag in terms of spirituality you've got the law of spirit and faith that's going to come overcome the law of sin and death That's what does it make sense? Y'all, I don't care how many people you get. I don't care how many football teams you get. I don't care how many muscle men you get. You get a full plane with all that metal and all that fuel and all that cargo and all those people. You cannot lift it off the ground. But there is one law that can do it, the law of lift and thrust. Sit back and relax and let your pilot take care of it. That's where we are. at, Brethren... My heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that I might be saved. What's the saving from? I've got a lot of friends that says from going to hell. It's not in the passage. Pretty tough to make an inference using total depravity and God's finished work. Can't do it. Let's try the antecedent approach. For I bear them record that they have a zeal of God, but not according to knowledge. For they, being ignorant of righteousness and going about to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted themselves to the righteousness of God. What are they having submitted to? Lord, I realize I can't do it. I'm submitting myself. I'm putting my trust in you that you have done it for me. Oh, man, what a relief that is. That's what the gospel we preach. For Christ is the end of the law of righteousness to everyone that believeth. What is that saying? It's saying everyone that believes in Christ's finished work, you know, that Old Testament law, that, that process of earning your way into heaven, it's ended, it's over. And to that I say, praise the Lord. Amen? So when I come and I run into folks and they say, well, this particular person, whether it be a baby or adult, died before they got baptized. You know what? It's just another law. When it says they didn't persevere to the end, that's just another law. Do you understand? They didn't believe enough. They didn't repent enough. They didn't do enough good works. They didn't love enough. Those are more laws. Our faith in Christ does not get us into heaven. What it does, it puts an end to that law of us trying to earn our way into heaven. But get me, I say this every single time, it doesn't mean we stop sharing that good news. We don't share the good news to get people into heaven. We share the good news to tell them they've got heaven. Stop trying to earn it because you can't. No person on this earth, except for the Lord Jesus Christ, could follow all the rules. So I'll thinking, you think you're going to do it? No way. So, brethren... My heart's desire and prayer for my children, my relatives, my co-workers, former students, neighbors, a clerk, is that they be saved. But not the saved that most people think. It's the saved from their ignorance. That's a worthy cause. May the Lord bless you. Thank you.